So sometimes when you're a preacher and you're sitting behind your desk and you're trying to figure out, you know, how do I introduce the text? Um, and sometimes your mind wanders and you go to weird places. And I've often wanted to share this with you, but uh, so tonight's the night. I just wanted to show you the first page of my Bible. It's a disaster. Um, my Bible is 30 plus years old. Yes, I know it's older than most of you. Um, it's been recovered at least twice. It's my most prized possession. I guard it with my life. If I lost it, I know the Lord would help me recover, but I would be devastated for a while um, because I have 30 years of notes in here, right? Um, 30 years of John Piper quotes and John MacArthur quotes. and uh, So it would, be, it would be bad. It would be real bad if I lost my Bible. But in the front of my Bible, you can see that I... I have one word. I have several large words written here in the front. This is the cover page. Um, what's that word right there, Elijah? Wonder. Wonder, right? Exclamation point. It's probably the largest word in the Bible. I wrote it in there because that's how I feel when I'm looking at God in His Word, right? I'm filled with awe and I'm filled with wonder. Another word here is joy, omnipotent joy. When I'm experiencing those really deep moments with God, you know what I'm talking about when you're in the Word of God and, and he's, he's teaching you new things, He's showing Himself to you. I just feel this you know, invincible, omnipotent joy. Another phrase I have written here is everlasting and ever-increasing joy. I don't think we often think about this. It's not simply everlasting joy, it's ever-increasing joy. It's another reminder I have in the front of my Bible. I stole another quote here about joy from C.S. Lewis. Some of you will be familiar with it. Lewis says that the true Christian is seriously joyful and what? Joyfully serious. That's right. Chinelo. Was that Chinelo or uh, Tony? Okay. So I just want to ask, are you seriously joyful then? If you are, yeah, you've, you've seen Christ. And if you've seen Christ, you are joyfully serious. There's a word in here that's often misunderstood. It has two distinct definitions. What's this word say, Elijah? Can you read that word there? Ravished. Ravished. Well, now, ravished can have a negative connotation, but the way I mean the word is to be overwhelmed by emotion and filled with delight. Again, this is what happens when I'm with God in the Word, right? And He's, he's showing Himself to me, and He's teaching me. There's another word written in the front of my Bible that you probably would never guess if I gave you a thousand guesses. It's the word fun. Um, some of you don't know that it's fun to know God. Some of you don't know that it's fun to walk with God. You don't know this. I hope that most of you do. But I, I, would, I would wager a guess that some of you in here do not know what you're missing. You think the world's more fun. Okay, I'm an old man, I'm going to tell you. I've done more stuff than you in the world. Nothing, com nothing in the world compares to Jesus Christ. It's just the truth. I'm, I'm telling you this. That's just free. That's free. When we worship God, we can never exaggerate. You can never exaggerate about the biblical God. 
So there are many words, random words. You know, these are just thoughts and feelings and impressions and emotions that I have over the years as I've studied the Word of God. I have a couple of things in the front of, the, of my Bible about my vocation, so I remember what I'm supposed to do when I stand here, right? One of them is, I guess the most important one is that I have an audience of one. You're not my audience. God is my audience. You know, I learned in seminary. I went to a good seminary. There are bad seminaries. I went to a good one. And my preaching professor taught me that my worship was my sermon. And I offered it up to God, right? So, this is between me and God. When I'm up here doing this, this is between me and God. It's for your benefit, but I have an audience of one. I hope you like my sermon, but if you don't, I'm not going to lose any sleep over it. What I really want is God to love my sermon. I want to have integrity with the Word of God, right? He is my audience. And that keeps me honest. It keeps me from trying to tickle your ears. There's another thing I wrote to myself here in the front of the Bible, Jeremiah 26, 2. Do not omit a word, right? Do not omit a word. Now, I know we just went through John 6, and there's some, you know, Jesus gets pretty strong in John 6, and I had a couple of you I know have struggled with some of the things in John 6. But you know, we can't edit God just because the Word makes us uncomfortable sometimes. We, we need to deal with what God is saying to us. And so that kind of brings me to the whole point of all this. You say, Jim, that's interesting, but really not so much. But um, here's the point. I have written in the front of my Bible. I actually used to write it on every sermon. I don't do it anymore. Um, but I have written the words of Richard Baxter, he's a renowned 17th century English pastor and theologian. And he reminds me that when I preach to you, you know, I'm not here to entertain you. I'm not here to, you know, give you an opinion. This is not a pep talk. I'm not a cheerleader. This is not, you know, a philosophical discourse. This is not therapy. This is the Word of God. It helps me remember Baxter's words, and I'm going to tell you what they are in just a minute, but Baxter's words help me remember that I'm not to stand here and try to be cute or slick or frivolous or, as John Piper says, chatty. He calls most of modern preaching chatty preaching, which what he means by that is obviously superficial. So every called of God preacher understands that heaven and hell are in the balance when I stand here. Right? So what kind of arrogance and superficiality would it be for me to stand here and play games with you? So Baxter says this, I preach as never sure to preach again as a dying man to dying men. That's why, you know, I'm a little bit intense, okay? At ICM, um, we just deal with the text. Because I know I'm a dying man and I may never preach again. And I'm preaching to dying men. You know, for the 35, well, I'm more like 40, 40, 40 45, right? It's about what I preach. You know, I'm going to tell you real stuff. Nobody else in the world is going to tell you real stuff. 
We're going to talk about important things, things that matter, things that matter forever. The young adults will read this week, if they read their homework, that God will not be tolerated. He instructs us to worship Him and to fear Him. This is what I remember when I, when I stand here. I am a dying man, and I'm preaching to dying men who will stand before their Creator. And you remember what Hebrews 10.31 says, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Everything hangs on what we do here, beloved. The church is not, you know, something that, well, if it's convenient, I'll participate in. The church matters. The Word of God matters. Being with the people of God matters. Singing His praises matter. Bringing Him an offering matters. All of this matters. It matters more than anything else in your life. Now, I know some of you are not convinced that that's true. But, beloved, it is true. So, we saw last week that we, maybe we get some sense of where Baxter gets his words from because Jesus, was, Jesus preached like this, right? He started John 6 with 5,000 men. How many did he have when he finished John 6? He had 12 guys, but one was an imposter, right? He had 11 committed men. Now, what do we learn from that? Well, if you know the Gospel of John very well, you realize that one of the predominant themes of the Gospel of John is unbelief. It's that most men and women do not want to hear what the true God actually has to say. And we saw in the last two weeks that, that the multitude grumbled and argued and complained and took offense and they withdrew. This is what happens in the world. It's what happens in, in the church even. People will hang around the church sometime for years and they hit that text and they go, I don't, I don't, I, I don't like that. They're gone. You know, I'm sure you've seen it if you've been around the church very long, the church at large. I know I've seen it many, many times. So, the prominent, one of the prominent themes in John is unbelief. And let me just say this to you. Let me just read Romans 3, 10 and 12. I want, I want, to make, I want you to understand as we come out of John 6. I want you to understand about your responsibility, my responsibility before God. Romans 3, 10 and 12 through 12. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. This is who mankind has chosen to become before His Creator. Now listen to this breathtaking a verse from Isaiah 65.1. What, what did the text just tell us? There is no man or woman that truly seeks for God ever. But listen to what God says. Isaiah 65.1 I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am. Here I am. And God continues in Ezekiel 33.11 He says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back 
Turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die? You know what Jesus says in Luke 19.10, I have come to seek and save that which was lost. So what's, what's the God of the Bible saying to us? Come, here I am. Why then will you die? We've been talking a lot about the sovereignty of God and the salvation of His people. But Jesus keeps, also keeps hammering the point. You've got to come, right? And the invitation is there. Come! Come! Here I am, God says. <laughs> Here I am! Why, why do you choose death? Here I am! It's an amazing, amazing invitation. So what's the unavoidable implication of God's overtures in the, in the last few verses I've shared with you? If a man lands in hell... It's because he would not come. He was unwilling to come. We saw what Jesus said over in John 5.40, You are unwilling to come that you might have life. So tonight, in John 7, we're going to see unbelief again. We saw it all the way through John 6. We're going to see it again in John chapter 7. First, the unbelief of Jesus' brothers. Secondly, the unbelief of the religious leaders. So, I've got my Bible open to John chapter 7, first five verses. Uh, after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee. This is where He's been. Um, for He was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill Him. Now it was the Feast of Booths was at hand, and His brothers, verse 3, said, Now you should go up. You should go up into Judea. And let your disciples behold your works, which you are doing. Verse 4. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Verse 5. For not even his brothers were believing him. That first verse there, let me just make sure you understand. Jesus is not afraid. He's not fearful of the religious leaders. It's just not his time to, to die yet, right? If you know the Gospels, you know that the, the Pharisees tried to kill him ten times. Well, they got him on the eleventh time. Guess what was different about the eleventh time? It was time. He gave himself up. You know, people often say, well, why did he go to the Garden of Gethsemane? Surely he knew that's where they would come. Yeah, he knew that's where they would come. And when they came to arrest him, they said, we're here to get Jesus. He says, I am he. And he knocked all of them down, about 600 guys. And then they, you know, tied him up with a little rope. Listen, he's God. He's in charge. Okay? He's not afraid to go to Judea. He's not afraid of the religious leaders. We know that the cross was on God's timetable. Acts 2.23 It was according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. So what's up with his brothers? It, the, the text tells us that they were not believing in him. So what difference does it make to them if he goes to the feast? What could it possibly... Why would they want Him to go to the feast? What's the big deal? As some of you know, He had four brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And we know He had at least two or more half-sisters. So He had four half-brothers and at least two or more half-sisters. But the brothers, they don't believe in any saving way. They don't believe He's the Messiah 
They don't believe that He can save them from their sins, but man, He could do some cool miracles, right? And they like this about Him. My brother does miracles, man. And they want to be seen with Him. And they want to hang out with Him. And they want to go to Jerusalem. And they want some of that reflective glory to fall on them. This is good business for them. I know Him. He's my brother. Oh, you want to walk again? I mean, I really think this is all about how they could use Christ. We've been talking a lot about this in the last few weeks. Of course they knew He was different. I heard a preacher say one time, I wonder how many times Jesus' brothers and sisters asked Joseph, why doesn't Jesus ever get a spanking? They knew He was different, right? They knew He was different. But they didn't believe that He was the Messiah. They just wanted to use Him. It's just like it was in John 6. You know, the multitude just wanted more of that free bread and free fish. This is the prosperity gospel. Um, it's what can I get out of God? This is an insult to God. We've been talking a lot about it, but I keep saying it because I know most of you, if not all of you, have been exposed to this. It's a false gospel. Let them be accursed, as the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 1. So this is about using God. They're the belief, the little belief that they do have, it's about how they can use God. It's not about how God can glorify Himself in their salvation. So, verses 6-9. through nine, Jesus said, My time is not yet at hand, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates Me because I testify of it, that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to the feast because my time has not yet fully come. And having said these things, He stayed in Galilee. So, first, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, my time is not my own. So what's He saying there? What's the inference? What's, this is true of Jesus, but it's also true of you if you're a Christian. My time is not mine. Whose is it? It's God's. Right? Jesus doesn't walk. He's modeling for us. We know He's God. But He is also man and He's walking in His manhood. He's modeling for us what every human being should be. Right? I submit my whole life to God. I come and go at God's leave. So He's modeling 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. You are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God. You are not your own. Listen, if you're still getting up in the morning and you're planning your day without reference to God, I want to say this may be why some of your days are going so poorly. <laughs> yeah. Submit your life, all of your life. To God, you are not your own. You've been bought. You've been bought with a price. But we see God goes up. Jesus goes up secretly. And there's a ton of theology here in verse 7. I could, this is like ten sermons right here. The world cannot hear you, but it hates me because I testify of it, and its deeds are evil. You guys remember what Jesus told Pilate that He was not of this world and His kingdom was not of this world. 
you may remember his followers, Jesus said his followers were in the world, but they were not of the world. It's a good question for you and me. Am I following Jesus more closely or am I still somewhat distracted with the world? Jesus is saying to His brothers that the world loves its own, but it hates Me. Why would the world hate its Creator? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And nothing was created that has been created that He did not create. Why does the world hate its Creator? Because Jesus says in John is it chapter 3, because I am light and men love darkness. Why do men love darkness? Well, it goes back to, John, it goes back to Genesis chapter 3, right? We've declared our independence from God. I'll have no God over me. I'll live my 80 plus years if I get them any way I want. I don't care what God says. I don't care what God says. And God gives you the freedom to do that. And God have mercy on you if that's who you are, right? In John 15, 19, Jesus says to the true believer, because you are not of the world, therefore the world hates you. Some of you know this is true. It's happened in your life. You remember what Paul told 2 Timothy over in 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's not a matter of when, it's a matter of... I mean, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. You will be persecuted if you seek to live godly in Christ Jesus. It's the Word of God. The world will hate you to one degree or another. Verses 10 through 13. His brothers went on up to the feast. Then he also went up, not publicly, but in secret. Verse 11. The Jews therefore were seeking him at the feast and were saying, Where is he? Verse 12, and there was much grumbling among the multitudes concerning him. Some were saying he's a good man. Others were saying no. On the contrary, he leads the multitude astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. Now, I trust that you understand anytime you see the phrase the Jews uh, in the Gospels, it's always talking about the religious leaders. So that's what that phrase means. The religious leaders, they were afraid of the religious leaders. So, verse 11, the Jews are looking for Him and they're grumbling about Him. Some say He's good. Others say, no, He's a charlatan. He's an imposter. Same arguments going on today in the world, isn't it? And no one was speaking openly about Him for the fear of the religious leaders. Now, what had happened? What had happened in John 5? Anybody remember? Why were they seeking to kill him? Does anybody remember? Because he said that he was got the bread. <clears throat> Two things, you're right. He healed a guy on the Sabbath, which religious people hate that. Right? These religious Jews hated that. It's like Jesus was saying, Hey, I created the Sabbath, I'll do whatever I want on the Sabbath. I'm God. Who do you think you are? He healed on the Sabbath, but then he did equate himself with the Father. And they were seeking to kill him, right? So, in the eyes of these religious people, it's like God is right in front of them. And it's like they're saying, how dare you heal a man on our Sabbath? It's not your Sabbath. It's God's Sabbath. 
You know, I hear people all the time complaining, God's not treating me right in my life. Well, guess what? Your life is a gift. <laughs> God can take it at any moment. It's really not yours. It'll be gone soon. I always recommend humility before God. Your life is not your own. It is a gift from God. He gives it and He takes it when He's ready. Don't get too used to it. We know the Bible tells us we are vapor upon the earth. Listen, you'll have a far, great, a far happier life if you'll remember that you are vapor. If you remember that every day you get up, that this could be your last day, could be your last breath, could be your last heartbeat, could be your last brainwave. You will, you will drink deeply at the fountain of, of, of faith and life if you remember you are vapor. If you will remember that simple fact. Verses 14-15 But when it was now in the midst of the feast, the Jews went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews therefore were marveling, saying, how has this man become learned having never been educated? So, yeah, he's teaching. He's expounding, no doubt, on the Old Testament, all of which ultimately pointed to him. And they marveled at him, right? He teaches like an educated man. He teaches like a scholar. He doesn't quote men. He quotes himself. He's, he teaches as one with authority. He does have authority. He has all authority, as God, as God will tell us at the, end of cha uh, at the last chapter of Matthew. He has all authority. Galaxies obey Him. But man, could He teach. And the people marveled. They, he made the Word come alive, right? There were no mysteries with Him, no paradoxes. It made me think of the two guys on the road to Emmaus. You guys remember Jesus after Jesus' resurrection and He came along these two disciples and He began to talk to them and He began to show them how the Scriptures pointed to Him. Do you remember what they said? you remember what they said? I always love this. Were not our hearts burning as He opened up the Scriptures to us? It's why I write wonder in the front of my Bible. Okay? It's why I write joy and ravished and, you know, Seriously joyful and joyfully serious and, and fun. My heart burns when God speaks to me from the Word. If you're a believer, you get it. You have the same kind of heartburn, right? It's an awesome thing to realize who your God is, who your Creator is. And it's an awesome thing to realize that you're loved by Him and that you matter to Him, and that He has something specific for you to do. You're not simply here to take up space, or to become renowned, or to make a lot of money, or to have a family, or to, you know, we'll do a lot of these things, but we're really here to know and love and delight in God. And His name is Jesus Christ. That's why you're really here, beloved. And if you think you're here for any lesser reason, you're sadly mistaken. You are here to know God and you are here to magnify God for the few moments that you are on this planet. So, we're going to see this at the end of the chapter. You remember, the Pharisees send a guard to arrest Him and, and they come back empty-handed. Well, and They say, well, why did you come back empty-handed? Do you remember what they, says, what they say at the end of chapter 7? Nobody talks like this guy. 
Nobody talks like this guy. They couldn't even arrest him. Nobody talks like this guy. We're going to see it again next week. So verses 16 and 17, maybe the heart of the chapter, or at least this part of the chapter, first half of the chapter. Jesus therefore answered and said to them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If any man is willing to do his will, he shall know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. Jesus has been saying this over and over and over again during his ministry. I am God. I'm speaking for God. I was sent from the Father. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. The things I speak are from the Father. I know the will of the Father. He just keeps saying this over and over and over. It is an undeniable claim to deity. In verse 17 is huge. If any man is willing to do God's will, he will know my teaching is of God. In effect, beloved, this is the willing part. If any man really wants God and God's will for his life, he will see that Jesus is the Creator and the Savior. He will know that Jesus is more than simply a man. He will recognize his God. This is a big deal. Jesus is saying if a man really wants God, he will understand what I say. He will discover that I am God and there is no other. So the implication here is, as I said earlier, if a man lands in hell, it's because he was unwilling. Nobody gets to blame God. I know that you hear this out in the world. People say, well, God's culpable. God should be blamed. He hasn't made Himself known. I beg to differ. <laughs> he says... I am evident in the created order. I wrote my name on your heart. I'm in your conscience. Oh, and I came in the flesh. What has He left undone? You tell me. What has He left undone for you? Right? No man's going to stand before God and say, I did not know or understand. Wrong. That's not what the Word of God tells us. The implication here is that if you land in hell, you are there because you were unwilling to come that you might have life. John 5, 40. And I was talking with Karen about this yesterday. John 6 is full of the sovereignty of God and the salvation of His people. But I love John 5 and John 7 that sandwiches John 6, John 5. Jesus says you're unwilling. John 7, Jesus says if you are willing, if you are willing, you'll know. If you are willing, you'll know. If you're willing, you'll come. You'll recognize me. You'll know who I am. I am your Creator. So, God says, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And then what does He say? Someone tell me. you got to know Jeremiah 29. What does He say next? And I will be found by you. This is how I evangelize with people. People say, what do I do, Jim? Seek God. I don't get people to pray it. I don't get people to pray a prayer. I don't believe in the magic prayer. I say, seek God, find God, encounter God, be changed by God. Because there's that promise, Jeremiah 29. If you seek me, I will be found by you. God says, Here I am. Why should you die? If you die, 
eternally if you die the second death, then that will be on you. Verses 18 to 24. You heard me read this uh, text, and I won't reread it. Um, but Jesus is making the point that um, he does not speak from himself, he's not seeking glory for himself, he is true. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? And of course, the multitude's not aware that the religious leaders are seeking to kill him, so they say he has a demon. What do you mean people are trying to kill you? Jesus said, I did one deed, and you marvel. Again, he's talking about John 5. I, I healed a man who was laying by the pool of Bethesda for 38 years. And God exercised his authority to heal his creature. And now the Jews want to kill him for it. The Jews want to kill him for this healing and claiming that he was indeed God. And Jesus just keeps telling, telling these guys, right? These guys think they can keep the law. What was the law for? I never forget what Karen did when we, when we were in Qatar and we toured a, a, a mosque, and this guy was taking us through the mosque. He was an English speaker. And he used to be a Christian. You know, he said, well, I left Christianity because you can't keep the law. And Karen said the perfect thing. She said, that's the point. <laughs> you can't keep it. He was an Englishman who had moved to, to Qatar. Man can't keep the law. It's not about keeping the law. And these religious men, these self-righteous religious men thought they could keep the law. They couldn't keep the law. The whole point of the Bible is you can't keep the law. You need a Savior. That's the whole point of the Bible. Right? It's what Jesus is saying to them. You remember how He unloaded on them in Matthew 23, 27-28. He says, You are whitewashed tombs. You appear beautiful on the outside, but inside you are full of dead men's bones. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. This is what religion does. <laughs> I look pretty on the outside. You think I'm a good man. No! There are no good men. There are only saved men. Right? There are no good men in the eyes of God. No, not one. Romans chapter 3. It depends on if you believe the Bible or not, right? There are no good men, only those who have come to Christ and been saved. These men, Jesus will tell in John 8, a couple of weeks from now, we'll hear Him say to them, you are of your father the devil. Now, these are the most religious men who ever walked the planet. They had the Bible memorized. The Old Testament, right? Are you getting some sense of how good, what good religion is? Are you, are you getting some sense? It's no good at all. All the world religions are worthless. Pseudo-Christianity is worthless. You need a Savior, just like me. Right? You need a Savior. We all desperately need a Savior. So, um, we see this picture of religion and, and, and God says, you're mad at me for healing a guy? You circumcise people on the Sabbath. 
Are you saying that it's okay to circumcise a man on the Sabbath, but you can't heal a man on the Sabbath? He says, what are you talking about? This is how stupid religion gets, right? When, and even pseudo-Christianity, false Christianity, when Christianity leaves this, which pretty much the Catholic Church has done, Eastern Orthodoxy has done, and many mainline uh, denominational uh, Protestant denominations, they've left this. They don't teach this anymore. Now, they may take a verse out of context and then say something pretty about it. But this is why religion does all kinds of stupid things. It's what these men are doing. They're mad at God for healing a guy. Jesus says, you circumcise a man, but you get mad at me for healing a man. So, I'm going to close. Who knows what the stated purpose of the Gospel of John is? You should know this. John says it. He writes it in chapter 20. Anybody know? That you might go to church. No, that's not it. That you might be religious. No. That's not it. That you might be self-righteous. No. What is it? That you might believe. The whole purpose of this book is that you might believe. Now, what we've been seeing so far is a lot of unbelief. Right? But that's what you see in the world. And you, and you start to think, well, nobody's believing anyway. Why should I believe? Well, are you going to be like a lemming? Are you going to follow the, the, the herd over the cliff? John says, I've written these things that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in, by believing you might have life in His name. It's why preachers preach like Richard Baxter as a dying man to dying men because everything hangs on you believing. Not being religious. Not doing good. Not keeping the law. Not praying a prayer. Not being baptized. Not doing the sacraments. Not praying to Mary. Not taking a pilgrimage. What does God say? God says, believe. Be willing to believe. That's what God says. Are you willing to believe? Are you willing to believe that Christ will save you? And so I just want to say what believing is from the Bible. It's not mental assent to historical facts. That's not what it is. When the Bible talks about believing, it means believing in such a way that everything changes. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. This is the kind of believing that the Bible's talking about when it's talking about salvation, when it's talking about faith. Saving faith. Now, there is a kind of believing that does not save. There's a book in that uh, shelf there written by my spiritual mentor called Wasted Faith. It's an excellent little book. Many of you have read it and shared with me that it has helped you. Wasted faith. What is wasted faith? 
It's a non-biblical faith, right? It's, it's like his brothers. It's the, it's the prosperity gospel. It's believing God for blessings. It's merely believing God for blessings. That is a wasted faith. That is not belief in the way God talks about it, right? I just want to use God. It's just like the, the men and women of John 6. It's like his brothers. I just want to use God. Well, if that's your relationship with God, I, I, I would say to you that you have a wasted faith, a false faith, a pseudo-faith. Don't let your faith devolve into simply trying to get blessings from God. And what about the Jewish leaders? What kind of faith do they have? They believe their religion will save them. <laughs> okay? They believe they're going to stand before God and say, I'm a son of Abraham. Right? I'm a son of Abraham. I believed in Moses. I kept the law. I tithed my deal in mint and cumin. I'm a good man. They have a wasted faith. It's religious. It's not relational. They knew the whole Bible. They knew the whole, test, the whole Old Testament. They did not know God when He stood in front of them. Right? It is a faith that does not save. So the Bible uses a lot of different verbs when it's talking about salvation. You know, And sadly, the way the Gospel is presented in many, many times in these last days is it's just... It's like, well, if you give mental assent to Jesus as a human being and that He died on the cross and that He rose again, that's, that's, that means you're a Christian. <laughs> well, mental assent has never saved anybody. When you read the Bible, you realize believing, it, these, these verbs, believe, it's believing, receiving, repenting, denying, loving, obeying, delighting, following, worshiping, uh, persevering, overcoming, etc., etc., etc. If it's real on the inside, it will be pouring out on the outside. I say this to you all the time. Christianity's outside. No, it's inside out. I get dyslexic sometimes. Christianity is inside out. It's like that. Jen Lowe's heard me quote this a million times. Uh, Sarah Grove, she's an American singer. She's got a great song. It's called Something's Changed. And she says, something's changed in me, broke wide open, and it's all spilled out. So, that's how you know. <laughs> that's how you know. That's how you know that you believed in a biblical way because everything's changed and it's all spilling out, right? That's how we know. This is what the Bible is teaching us. So, really believing inevitably leads to really living it. To really believe it is to really live it. It's why men like me write words in front of their Bible. Every true called of God preacher knows everything matters. Everything that matters hangs on believing. And so, when I stand in front of you, I don't want to be chatty. I don't want to be... I don't want to be anything but God's man, right? I just want to, I just want to be God's mouthpiece. So I'll just ask you this. This is what a, a dying man should ask dying men. Are you willing to believe that you might have life? Are you willing to believe that you might live? 
Beloved, the ball's in your court. And those of you who know Christ, I want you to go out in the world and challenge your friends. Are you willing? Oh, you don't believe? Well, let me tell you some stuff about him. You know, people are going to believe or not believe. But let us respect and love them enough to share the truth with them. I understand you have to pick your spots. I understand that not every, every encounter or every venue is ideal. I get that. I understand that. I pick my spots. But I begin praying. When, someone's in, when someone news in my life, I begin praying, Lord, how, how, can I, how can I share the gospel with this person? Right? Of course, they expect to hear it from me. I'm a big-time mega-pastor, right? They expect, it to hear from, they expect to hear the gospel from me. You know why the gospel's more powerful coming from you? You know why? They don't expect to hear it from you. You have much more impact in the world than I can ever have. I get paid to say it. I have zero credibility in the world. He gets paid to say it. You have all the credibility. You go out there and you say it because you love Him. You know, that's why I say it too, but people can't see past the fact that I get paid. So you have far more credibility than I do. Go share the Gospel, beloved. Go share the Gospel. And for those of you who do not know Him, are you willing to believe that you might have life? Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank You for showing these two forms of unbelief to us. This wanting to use God and this wanting to justify ourselves through religion. We understand we cannot come to God in those ways. But thank You for the Gospel. Very simple. If anyone is willing to believe, let him come that he might have life. Thank you for this simple invitation, Father. We love you. We praise you. What a beautiful and awesome God you are. Thank you for these words. Thank you for the Gospel of John. Thank you for the Bible. For it is our bread and our meat and our drink. We meet you here and we feel wonder and we feel joy and we feel life and we feel awe. Thank you, Father. Thank you for this amazing gift. We give all praise, glory, and honor to the name of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. I'm going to, let's stand and I'll just read a benediction and we'll be dismissed. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace. Have a great week. God bless. Those of you who know Christ, go tell. That's why you're here. Go tell. Go tell. Go sow the seed. I had someone sharing with me the other day. Jim, nothing ever happens. Wrong. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean nothing is happening. God's Word does not come back, someone tell me, void.
Go do the Word. Go sow the seed. Have a great week. God bless. We love you. Come back and see us next week.